welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaly, and I am joined by the full cast and crew today, uh, Alistair Roberts, Andrew Wilson, and Matthew Lee Anderson. Um, today, we want to take up an interesting issue, which is just uh, a biblical text. We, we, we talk about the Bible a lot, we talk about biblically related issues, but today we wanted to, in the next couple weeks, we wanted to take uh, a focus in on uh, the, the text of First and Second Kings. And to kind of set up that discussion, I'm going to hand it over to the illustrious uh, Andrew Wilson. So go ahead and lead us on in there, the subject. <laughs> That's a great intro, isn't it? We're going to talk about this book. I don't really hey, know I why. So, Andrew, why don't you take it away? I was just... <laughs> I, I called excellent. you. I called you illustrious. Okay, just go with it. You did. Just that offsets anything. Um, yeah. So I, I had a kind of great joy. I, I, I've worked through a number of commentaries in my devotional life over the years, which I've just found surprisingly edifying. Some of them are, are much more upbuilding than others. And I, I really uh, one, one and two kings had had been a mysterious section of scripture for me um, for a, for a long time. I, I love the bit in the middle with Elijah and Elisha. Um, you know, fire and bears and access and all the rest. But the other stuff, I just thought this is this is just sort of a cursory, like this is a necessary evil really in the Bible. It's sort of filling in historical blanks. I get the bit with Solomon, but then all the lists of the kings, which seems to take up a large section of the book. I don't really understand what it's doing. And I certainly don't, I guess I would certainly have read it and gone, that's useful historical background, but I don't understand why it's gospel. I don't understand, I wouldn't really know how to, except with a few obvious exceptions, how to preach from it in a way of preaching Jesus from it. And I just found it a, a, a bit of a historical haze. And I would also struggle why there was that. And then we had Chronicles as well, which seems to cover a lot of the same ground. And so I, I was there for quite a long time. And it's even worse. I, well, Chronicles is much worse, but Chronicles has obviously got it. At least with Chronicles, you go, there's a sort of a very clear agenda here. It's very, a, you know, hey, Let's give Jehoshaphat four chapters because he's into playing instruments. And, you know, it's kind of obvious what his agenda is in a way. Whereas the author of One Kings just sort of seems to be quite matter of fact. And just and then there was this king and he wasn't great. And then it all went wrong. And, you know, and I hadn't really seen, I just couldn't see the gospel in it. I think it, it, where I was. Um, and I just found the, even, I mean, I was reading through Peter Lightheart's commentary, One or Two Kings for a, a few months and using it as my devotional guide. And but just found the the introduction even it's just a sort of six or seven page introduction yeah. just one of the most fantastic theological essays I've ever read on anything, um, in which he just he makes a whole bunch of points about what one one kings and one and two kings but one kings is trying to do um, in terms of pointing out and he gives examples of how yeah the law can't save you and look at this person who kept the law but that didn't work and then wisdom can't save you and look at this king who is the embodiment of wisdom Solomon and that doesn't actually save Israel and the temple can't save you look here is this wonderful building at its height and that didn't save either the only thing that's going to save is, uh, is the mercy of God expressed to an idolatrous and rebellious people who actually have to die and go into exile in order to come out the other side and be raised again and the way he sketches that through is just so powerful because he just sees the theme of the mercy of God and now I would read one, one or two kings completely differently because I would see the mercy of yeah. God, the long sufferingness of God, as he promises, you know, when Jeroboam first sets up idolatrous worship, he says through a prophet, you're going to, this is going to be destroyed. And a guy called Josiah is going to come along and take this to pieces. And actually that the shock of one and two Kings is not God judges, but why isn't God judging? Because you wait for book, you know, chapter after chapter of you know, decade after decade and King after King of idolatrous rebellion. And you still haven't seen the judgment. 
you think whether Hex Josiah, he doesn't come in until the end of Two Kings, when you finally think, wow, this God is a, he's truly a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I think I've just found that my reading of the book has been so, so helped and informed by that. I, I just quite, now would find it one of the books I'd most like to preach through rather than a book I'd think, oh, where do I go? So that's a sort of three minute yeah. summary, I suppose, of, of what I've got out of the book more recently. And, it, and it's been a really uh, spiritually upbuilding process for me as well as an intellectual one. Yeah, the, the the fidelity angle. I remember that was struck me when I was uh, in college, and I just decided to really start reading my Bible like crazy. So I started trucking through this, and uh, when I got to the section of First and Second Kings, you know, much the same Elijah, all this kind of wonderful section there. But uh, when I when I got through that list of there's that chunk there after after Rehoboam and chapter twelve um, when he messes things up, which is one of my favorite stories of the whole cycle. But um, this king after king, you just hear, you know, and so-and-so was awful, and he, you know, pillaged and committed all the sins of, you know, his father so-and-so. Uh, and yet, for the sake of David, uh, and yet, for the sake of David, and so multiple times he just reiterates, for the sake of David, uh, God leaves uh, God leaves a king on the throne of of Jerusalem, uh, and that just that note that refrain, and this is this is generations of God saying, and yet because of my guy, because he had a heart for me, because of his fidelity, because, and that 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 fidelity um, in delaying judgment and showing mercy to others. I mean that that kind of almost substitutionary that representative that 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 kind of grace for the sake of others for for the sake of a faithful one that um struck struck me yeah the representative theme and is just fantastic isn't it the the, 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 yeah, the king it, it the just, king is the one in whom the nation is counted righteous or not and um it's just yeah it's a wonderfully christian thing and and it reverberates through 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 history at that point. It's not even just okay. Your current king is righteous now, and so I will. Or okay, you know, one generation on, but no, generation after generation, that 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 faithfulness comes, and you, it's almost an outworking. It's an outworking of the promises that um, that God makes in uh, declaring His name in Exodus. You know, showing showing faithfulness to the thousands. Uh, you know, because of, because of, you know, your obedience. And so that theme is one of, uh, I think one of the ones that just comes through so powerfully in first and second Kings. And, and I think it especially comes in first Kings because that refrain continues to, to be, to be noted. Um, Alistair, do you want to, do you want to jump in here? Yes. Any initial I'm thoughts on talking about first Kings, talking about the themes that we see within the book think one of the things that I find when I'm reading a new biblical book um, that I've not really studied in great depth before, I'm familiar with all the stories and everything, I've read it through dozens of times, but I've never really got my teeth into it and really grasped um, its deeper structure. One of the things that you find is that there's this period of struggling to get the rhythm, as it were, of the text, to sense the biblical um, themes that are recurring, the um, 
it's like listening to a piece of music and trying to get that rhythm if you want to dance to it or something. There's this period where you're just trying to capture it and then when you get it, suddenly it starts to move and there's a fluidity and you have... It suddenly makes sense to you and you can coordinate yourself with it. Now, I think with the book of First Kings and Second Kings, it can often be a struggle to get that initial sense of what are these themes doing? How do these things fit into the broader biblical narrative? Is this just gap filler or is it something that actually fits in with the bigger themes? One of the things that you notice fairly early on, I think, something that Lightheart brings out, is that there are a lot of, let's say, Exodus themes when you're reading the book. So if you start off at the beginning, there's this handover of power from David to Solomon. And there's a whole lot of themes there that are reminiscent of Moses handing things on to Joshua. Elsewhere, there is this sort of reversal of the themes of Exodus, where these um, characters, Hadad and Jeroboam, both go away to Egypt and both have this period where they are threatened and then come back, um, threatened by the king of um, Israel, and then they come back and they are brought into the land, they're given power, etc. And it's a sort of reversal of the theme and playing with this inverse. Then you have things like Jeroboam playing the role of Aaron and this rebellion of Israel following the the Exodus, where he sets up these two golden calves. And then this man of God comes in the next chapter and breaks apart the stone altar, reminiscent again of Moses breaking apart the um, pillars, or breaking apart the tablets. And then later on you have things like the story of Elijah going to Mount Sinai and meeting with God there and God instructing him concerning what he ought to do, then setting apart this new prophet-like figure to follow after him, Elisha. And then at the beginning of um, Two Kings, you see very much a transition event following a crossing of the Jordan, or associated with the crossing of the Jordan, like we see with Moses and Joshua. And so that's just one example of broader biblical themes that are at play in this book that give us a sort of handle upon what's taking place. And as we explore these deeper and follow the leads that they open up, I believe that we'll see some broader patterns and meanings and structures that are illuminating. Um, Another example, I think, are the big symbols of the book or the, um, I suppose, the the thing, the objects or entities that are the centre of the book. So things like the temple. The temple is very much a focus of attention um, at the beginning of the book as Solomon establishes it. Or the idea of the king as a figure. The king is a very key figure. And as we explore these different stories of kings, they're united within this um, character of the king that the book is calling us to pay attention to and the role that the king plays within the larger life of the nation. So I think finding some sense of these themes can be very helpful in getting a grip on the book. They are our initial footholds or um, the initial ways that we start to get some purchase upon the text. Yeah. What, what, um, if y'all don't mind, one, one thing that, grabs me about first and second Kings is the, and I, 
before before reading Lightheart Commentary, which again was so helpful, struck me and then was reinforced was the the element of just theology proper and uh, just the doctrine of God in the book um, and the political theology that involved. And that this is this is a this is a book of of God in his working in history, but working through you know the the nitty gritty real politic of history. Um, this is handing over kingdoms. This is handing over dynasties. This is raising up and and tearing down. This is appointing. This is you know when, when again Rehoboam loses the kingdom in uh, chapter twelve. Um, this was from it says you know this was from the Lord. This this appointment. This this tearing of it out of his hands and and it was a tearing that wasn't it was an act of judgment but it was it was not for the better in the long it looks like in the long run of of just israel's national life um it didn't immediately play out well um and that element is interesting and disquieting in its own way so he's got this uh, lightheart's got this section in uh, chapter one where he's talking about um kind of the providential historiography of first and second Kings. And he talks about the, um, you know, he says here, Calvinists like the great 19th century Princeton, Princetonian Charles Hodge have no hesitation in saying that God uses the nations with the absolute control that a man uses a rod or a staff here in his hands. And he employs them to accomplish his purposes or in insisting that even sinful acts are so under the control of God that they can occur only by his permission and execution of his purposes, and so on and so forth. He says, once these generalizations are made specific, however, they stick in the throats of all but the highest of the high Calvinists. Substitute the Pol Pot regime for the nations, and theologians begin running for cover. Uh, and he kind of goes on, and that, that I don't know, that gave me pause. Um, and made me wonder why is that why would we uh, i mean i know why but i was curious what you guys made of that element of of the political theology and kind of god's work within israel and i think a in a sense a right hesitance to talk about um secular history or or you know if any history is secular but you know you know what i'm saying non non-testified in scripture history uh with the same kind of with the same kind of uh, descriptors so i that that is something curious for me and i was wondering if you all had thoughts there andrew alistair matt i just feel i wanted to say something but um <laughs> No, I'm, I'm properly. I, that is not true. I am actually this quiet sometimes. Um, I, I, I have similar concerns to what Derek just raised, actually. And it's something that Leithart, um develops. I mean, one of the really interesting things to me about reading, excuse me, Leithart's commentary uh, was the way it, um, for me, sort of fit in with the rest of his work. So it's really easy to read this and hear the end of Protestantism coming, <laughs> uh, the essay that he did. Um, 
uh, it's 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 just a, a sort of straight line uh, between those two, in part because of the uh, ecclesiological dimensions of the text that he digs up throughout, and some of these um, aspects of political theology as well that Derek's raising. Uh, Derek, I, I I mean, I have similar intuitions to you that there is a sort of gap between the way in which God uses the nations uh, for the sake of redemptive history um, in and, and the sort of particularity of uh, his use of the nations to tell this story, the story of Israel and God's acting in and through Israel and so on and so forth. And, and the dubiousness of expanding that to um, a generalized account of God's action in uh, p- political orders more broadly. Um, it doesn't necessarily follow that because we see God establishing and, and tearing down uh, nations and kings and so on and so forth here, that in fact he is doing the same in every uh, political order that we have. Um, and and Lehart seems to um, presume that, uh, that that does follow. And, and to me, it just doesn't. Um, it's entirely possible that this is a, that this has a special purpose and a special point and that divine action in this case um, is tied to that special purpose and the, and that special point, and that not all political action has the same sort of role. I mean, and some of the things that Alistair was talking about, the way in which this recapitulates themes from Exodus and other parts of Scripture, um, reinforce that specialness. Um, it, it reinforces that sense of um, this. This really is not sort of normal political action or or a normal political environment. It's a political environment that is suffused with meaning and where they're discovering meaning that is um, tied to the, the, the history of divine action in the past. Um, so that's, that, that's some of my skittishness of going all the way with the high Calvinists um, I, and, and allowing it to stick in my throat, as it were. See, for me, and I just want to sharpen it, for me, I, um, I kind of lean theologically with, you know, with the high Calvinists in the sense of, okay, I, I, Oh really? I, I'm I, shocked. I, shocked, Derek. I, really? <laughs> you should name your blog that leaning vaguely <laughs> with the high Calvinists. <laughs> Isn't that what reformed ish uh, means? Awful. Um, high Calvinist ish. Um, no, but the, but the element of, of, of God's, you know, hand, on the nations, but the question is what, why we do not then make pronouncements about God's work in history, um, or God's, at least, you know, at the very least, at the very least, you've got to give me sovereign permission for any event, right? Like, you know, God is not surprised at the rise of the orange one. Um, it's you know it's it's not something he's he's Golly. uh what um but at the same time when we see somebody say pronounce well okay this is clearly 
God's judgment or God's anointing or God's um, laughter out of boredom, whatever it is you want to attribute, what, why do we stop? Why is it, why is it appropriate for, I think, theologians to hedge in the way that, that Lightheart is putting his finger on? Um, and that's kind of more where my, uh, my concerns are. That said, so. when we're reading First Kings itself and Kings more generally, it's very striking that it's a book that relates God's activity in the history of the nation, but in a way that God is not always very clearly seen as an actor. God is seen, is presented as one who is acting, but his hand and the way that it takes is not always clear. And trying to read from the surface of the events what God's intention is, isn't easy, even in First Kings and Second Kings. There's an inscrutability to divine providence, even within these texts, where it's very clearly present. And I think that alone should give us caution when we're reading history that is not bound up with redemptive history proper. When we're reading the history of our nations. I mean, if you're looking at the history of um, Israel and Judah and you saw Josiah, you'd think, okay, God is going to, this is obviously God's intention that the nation should turn to him. He should forgive the nation, restore their fortunes, etc. But no, he sends them off into exile, even after all the work that Josiah and Hezekiah do. Um, in uniting the nation liturgically and re-establishing the law and all these sorts of things. It all falls apart. So if we can't read God's purpose straightforwardly from the events in First and Second Kings, then how much more so will we struggle to read it from our day and age? That does not mean that God is not active and sovereign within these events. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is interesting that Lightheart particularly explores as a theme is the way that God works in situations where all seems hopeless. The situation of the nation split or the situation of catastrophic national apostasy or a situation of going into exile. In each of these cases, we see that God is at work within the situation and these aren't These do not prevent the God who raises from the dead from achieving his purpose within the situation. I find that a very encouraging thing, taking into account all the differences between that time and our time and everything else that we need to recognise on that front in terms of the contrasts. We are still dealing with the same God and with all the Jeremiads about our cultural decline and our turn away from God, all these sorts of things. We still have the same God who acted within that time. And if the nation split, the radical apostasy of the nation, the um, going into exile, all these things didn't stop him then. Why should um, a post-Christendom situation stop him now? And I think often we do not take that sort of confidence from a faith in the God who raises from the dead. Rather, we seek to read from the events of history and determine our fortunes based upon the shifting events of our day and age. And although these do have something to say about our future hopes, 
they are not the final word. And as we see stories like the story of Elijah and Elisha and how on the very margins of the society of their day, God was using them to start a work that would yield fruit after the return from exile. I think that can be a a helpful lesson to us. And Lightheart uses it in that sort of way to talk about this development of a a church within the church, as it were, or talking about the split within the splits within the Christian church that arise from radical apostasy, from idolatry, these sorts of things. The splits are not the the error itself so much as that which arises as judgment upon the errors and the sins that we have committed and the idolatries that we're committed that we're bound up with. So I think that can be a helpful starting that- point. Yeah, that, that, that's one more thing I'm, I'm curious to hear you guys on is just that element of patience uh, and patience of God's work in history that you see uh, not only like in the nations, but in the church. Um, so Catherine Sonnerager has a section in her systematic theology on the invisibility of God. And she kind of talks about the, the invisibility of God, God's, in a sense, humility of not letting himself be seen and kind of enduring or ignoring his palpable presence. Um, and he appeals to texts um, like the, uh, oh gosh, I can't, can't remember the exact the exact names. I um, can't remember if it was Elisha and his servant Gehazi, uh, where, where basically he says, open Gehazi, open my servant's eyes and you see the angels all around him. Um, that element, I think, is also present in God's patience in dealing with the messiness and the um, inappropriateness of, of, of his people in history, thinking about the construction of the temple. And, you know, half of, you know, the part of Kings that describes the, the, the construction of the temple is, you know, it's, it's brilliant. It's, you know, it's gold. It's got all these, you know, panels, all these, all these, um, all these great materials. And, uh, you know, chapter eight, you've got the filling of the temple, you've got the prayer, um, and all this happens. And then, you know, a chapter two later, you read that, uh, you read that it was constructed with conscripted labor. Um, and there is, and, and, and this is at the same time that Solomon is amassing chariots and he's amassing wives and he's amassing all of the, 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 the seeds of his downfall and all of these just sins, violations of Torah, violations of, of what the king should be doing. And at the same time, he still chooses to fill the temple and dwell there and make promises. And that, um, I'm wondering about application today, uh, about, I, I, I one of my I worry about a certain kind of perfectionism in the church that is unwilling to see the work of God in, in um, just the compromised churches of history. Um, and that, I, I don't know if this is just a, this is one of those places where, you know, your, your hermeneutic of an old Testament versus a new Testament community of God comes in or what, or am I, am I, am I skimming, skewing the evidence here? Or so I'm just curious what maybe, you know, Andrew or Matt or maybe Alistair, who knows, sometimes he has something to say. Um, 
what would you say in response or is that theme kind of stick, stick out or? No, I think, I think it is. I think it's there. And I think I, I, obviously we, we've drawn a bit on Lightheart between us or Leetheart, if you're one of you two, I guess, um, on, on the sort of, because he, he, he pushes quite hard against the idea that the remnant is the sort of the pure Israel. Um, and says, actually, it's not, it's just the leftovers. It's, it's, but, the, but actually, sometimes the churches use that as if there is always a sort of a pure, distinct church within within the massive corrupt one, which I guess would be quite a an Anabaptisty, you know, reading of, reading of things. And I think actually, sometimes even in, in certainly my tradition, in a kind of more, you know, credo Baptist, charismatic, nonconformist context, which I'm in, um, you, you know, we are Elijah and everybody else's. You know, Ahab or the prophets of Baal, and they're all continuing with their slightly compromised idolatrous worship sort of thing. Um, and I just think it's worth bearing in mind that you you do have your Elijah, but you also have your it's, it's Obadiah, isn't it? The guy who's alongside King Ahab, who's mm-hmm. in the court, and who's, who's a faithful prophet. And you have both actually. You have someone who's called to be there, speaking sort of uh, speaking truth to power in a in a in a softer. Um, perhaps more finessed way, less quite certainly much less combative way. Wouldn't be identified as a troubler of Israel. Wouldn't be someone who you would tr- who the queen was trying to kill and have the dogs lick the blood up off the ground of. But at the same time, probably is able to do and say things that Elijah is not, and that that, that actually there is a place for the Obadiah as well. And you don't want to read too much into that, and therefore say, oh, it's fine if the church fudges the truth as long as they're rattling in the corridors of power. But I do think there's something in that that there that, that there's both the pure. And the the realities, which I think is what you're talking about, Derek, perhaps of Christendom of the last most of the last two thousand years, is that there has been a very large and quite influential, and yet at the same time we might say at certain times very morally compromised prophetic voice in and amongst the very sharp edged, more fiery on the margins, bearded, ranting people who have to run off and hide and nearly die, and then come in and say things really pure and hit people with truth and. I, I think that there is a that there is a place for both, and I, I don't know. I, so I, I, you I, if you, to take your contemporary point and try and apply it, I just think it's quite an interesting idea. Are you suggesting that Derek and I are the bearded ranters from the margins, whereas you and Matt are? The, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, obviously yes, um, but not just actually. I think I think it'd be that because it, we're, we're the compromised Presbyterian and and high church Anglicans who, whereas you know. He's he's got the pure he's got the pure kind of separatist separatist you know credo Baptist church and that we're the compromised ones. I yeah, think I think the reason why Matt and I are clean shaven is largely because we're not trying to compensate for the fact that we aren't on the marginal. We are already on the margin prophetic figures by virtue of being nonconformists, whereas you guys had to grow beards in order to offset the notion that you are establishment types. He's got our number. He's got our number. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that that Andrew's pointing out, um, or that and that Lightheart points out, is um, the interdependency of that two of those two roles. Right? It's not just that there's a place for both. It's that um, additionally, um, they both have a stake in what the other is doing, and it's not like the prof- prophetic community that arises the 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 community that is often interpreted as a remnant community um, doesn't have an interest in what goes on in Israel uh, in part because what goes on in the center of power is um, 
the, the, the prophetic community is sort of ordered towards. So in one sense, they're, they're a prophetic community for the sake of the whole thing. And um, they preserve and carry on a kind of um, purity until there is a sort of reunification on, on the far side of things. And that's, that's where you can hear Lightheart's The End of Protestantism coming in, right? Like, and that's, that's, that's the sort of move where it's just a straight line, I think, between that reading of the prophetic community and, and the quote-unquote remnant and the way in which the Protestant churches might be grafted in or there might be some sort of strange hybrid that comes uh, when, you know, at the end of all things or whenever it is for, for Lightheart. Um, so that, that interdependency really struck me uh, between those two. Yeah. I, I guess I think what's, I guess for me, what I, I start to think about is the, um, the element of like how much your, how much your, how much your theology of sanctification and justification starts playing into your read of history. Um, how much of it is kind of a, when we look at certain compromised ages or compromised figures and um, we have kind of an, I don't know, sometimes I think we have like an over-realized eschatology uh, when it comes to like an, an, an unrealistic expectation of the, the, the heights that we as a church can soar to in history, you know, before the return. Um, and so for me, it doesn't kind of, for me, this, I don't see this playing into kind of this, uh, a more post-millennial, you know, um, rise together into, into the eschaton, into, into the last days where things kind of purify and pan out. It's more of just the fact that it's, I, it just looks like it's going to be compromised all the way through. Uh, and there's grace and mercy and it'll get you, you know, it's the, it's the, justification of the ungodly church in the middle of history um until the end of history and so to be fair to be fair that, to lightheart though it's he's not talking in terms of this gradual progression upwards so much as this <laughs> falling down into death but then being raised by god so his post-millennialism right. is not this sort of optimistic things are only going to get better it's um we're going to die but God will raise us again. There is hope at the far yeah. side of death. And, and, and because the renewal movement, yeah, the he, renewal movement fails too. Yeah. Right? The, rem, the remnant in one sense doesn't succeed. They go into exile and it's only after that, that they're yeah. restored. And, and it's not even that, that, that I'm really even, I, I don't even really feel the need to critique Lightheart on this point. It just is a reading of what first and second Kings would lead us to expect about the church in history, you know, before that possible death and resurrection. Um, I don't know. I just think it, it pops, it just kind of tamps the brakes on a certain kind of, um, uh, anxious prophetic, um, dissatisfaction. I don't know if that's appropriate. I think there should be some kind of holy, holy holy dissatisfaction that, 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 there's always a risk of both. There's a risk of falling off both sides of the horse, though, isn't there? Because I think you can have an right. underrealized eschatology as well. And I think if you don't see the right. discontinuities between the people in one kings and the church as it is intended to be, and in, in fact, as it can be and has been today, 
this side of Pentecost where you have the Spirit right, you know, in our hearts, writing God's laws in our hearts and causing us to actually follow his commands rather than, but, you know, you, we, you know, what I mean is, and I know you'd agree with this, Derek, but you're not supposed to read 1 Kings and go, oh, well, that's all right. They were an idolatrous shambles. So when the church is, that's just what you'd expect. So I think in some ways it, it's, it, there's always going to be both between a story like that. I guess if it's warding right. us away from anxious panic that God isn't sovereign because the church is a mess, then great. But I think if it if it comes to the point of diminishing hope for growth and for the I mean the kingdom to be a seed that continues until it's filled the entire earth and I mean I'm I'm not postman myself but I think that the idea that the kingdom is supposed to get bigger rather than smaller is seems to me a fairly central idea in Jesus's metaphors and images and parables for it so I think if we were to read one Kings and say well there you go you know it's just a it is a bit of a mess and that that's that's what we should expect and it probably won't ever change and um, I'll just make sure that our, my prophetic community is is still on it. Um, I think we'd have misread it entirely. I doubt that's what you're saying, but, of course, but I, I I just think there is a risk on both sides of, of over and under yeah. eschatology. There. No, that's good. That's this is part of what I was I was looking to get a feel for on on everybody else's end. Um, it is encouraging so, to know that God can and does work within situations of seemingly hopeless. Um, compromise and failure and all these sorts of things that there are as it were hard hat areas of the church where we should not venture to go but we cannot presume that God is not at work there yeah yeah that that is that comes through in some spectacular ways in this text uh <laughs> some of the weirdest ways. Um, but with that, we probably do need to wrap up the discussion today. Um, thanks. Thanks a lot for all the contributions guys. Um, thank you to our listeners. If you've been listening, I also do want to uh, mention at the tail end of this, that in the next, in the next coming weeks, we are also going to be taking up a reading project, uh, reading and discussion project through the four loves by CS Lewis. So, if you want to join us, if you don't want to just listen into our thoughts on a text you haven't read, which is fine. Um, if you want to pick up uh, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, um, that that discussion will be coming up soon. Um, and so we just wanted to just give readers or listeners a, a heads up on that. So but with that, thanks again for listening. If you found any of this helpful, feel free to rate or review us on iTunes, share the episode around. And again, we have a Patreon account uh, that would be, you know, if you want to check that out, all the links will be uh, on the show notes at mirrororthodoxy.com. For now, good day. <laughs>